Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I uh, read through the Library of America 100 pages at a time. And um, currently, I'm grinding my way through the seven volumes of Mark Twain's writings that have been published by the Library of America. Um, and specifically, now we're looking at uh, the personal recollections of Joan of Arc. This is a Mark Twain book that many people um, don't read. Um, it's not one of his most famous works. Um, it's uh, one of his latest novels. It's a novelization of the, the life of, of Joan of Arc. And uh, I've been uh, bouncing around of, of what to make about it. It's, um, I think it's a lot about youth. It's a lot of Huck Finn is in this book. Um, it seems to be making a case that we need to defer to the youth. Um, now, I talked about issues like, you know, how astounding is Joan of Arc from the medieval point of view? Is it just from the modern point of view that we find her amazing? Now, ultimately, that doesn't matter that much because we're reading Mark Twain's account, right? And Mark Twain finds her kind of a, a very, very unique, unimaginably unique person. In fact, um, now, this middle third, uh, middle quarter, I'm doing a, four episodes on this. Um, so we're about halfway through. This is the third episode on the personal recollections of Joan of Arc. So we're about halfway through the book. Now, the second half of the personal recollections of Joan of Arc covers her military campaign after the victory of Orléans up to her martyrdom at the hands of conservative in her own rank and then ultimately among her own ranks the french she's betrayed by the french and then she's handed over to the english and that's kind of where the the final quarter of the book picks up so in the next episode we'll talk more about her trial which is based a lot on the historical sources as i as i understand it now <clears throat> he goes through like her major achievements the battle of Patay, this lift in the siege of Orleans, her other military achievements. Um, but overall, he's arguing that her victories come from her vernacular knowledge, her peasant background, her, her, her being a commoner is what makes those victories possible. The nobility could not save France because they didn't understand France. This is pretty explicit in the text, actually. Quote, how did she know it? It is simple. She was a peasant. That tells the whole story. She was of the people and knew the people. Those others moved into a loftier sphere and knew nothing much about them. We make little account of the vague, formless, inert mass, that mighty underlying force which we call the people, an epitaph which carries contempt with it. It is a strange attitude, for at bottom we know that the throne which the people support stands, and that when it supports is removed, nothing in the world can save it. End quote. So that's uh, possibly a thesis of the book here. Um, that, by the way, is on uh, in chapter chapter twenty three, uh, which is actually the chapter in which uh, ch chapter twenty three of part two of the book, which is uh, in Court and Camp, which actually uh, lists the great five great deeds of Joan of Arc, according to Mark Twain: the raising of the siege, the victory at Pate, the reconciliation at Solilleor, the coronation of the king, and the bloodless march. Um, now. The author here, who is reported to be like Mark Twain, presents it as like someone who 
fought with Joan of Arc and had lived to old age. He could tell her story. Um, he says these are all equal. These are all equal achievements. So that kind of frees him from like going into a lot of detail about all of them. He just sort of says these are all, all equal. He spends most of the time on maybe the pate, the siege of Orleans. He does a little bit on the coronation. He kind of skims over a lot because he wants to get to the trial. Um, now, in a sense, is this a reflection of like Gilded Age America that has a new set of monarchs, the monarchs being like the new ruling class, the, the business class, and then the masses challenging that. I, I would say the, the 1890s, the time when this was written, was a time of profound challenge to the, the new established order in the United States. Right where you have the populist movement and you have the beginning of labor struggles and the you know as soon as capital consolidated itself in the 1880s and 1890s it gets challenged by countervailing forces right and that of course makes up much of turn of the century history until we get to um, the New Deal where there's some sort of uh, essentially a deal worked out between that the ruling class and and the and the working class. That's all after Mark Twain's time, though, so he doesn't know that's happening. Um, so he is kind of looking for someone of the people to to save the day, right? Now he's not here making a justification of monarchy. You could read it that way from just a medieval point of view. This is justifying the monarchy. The monarchy speaks of the people; it's propped up by the people, therefore it should be supported. Um, you know, this isn't a pro-monarchy book cause, just because of their coronation any more than it's necessarily a pro-Catholic book, even though there is kind of a, a a fascination with Catholicism as as an institution, as an inspiration throughout it. Um, but the fact that one of Joan's successes was is offered up as the coronation of the king and the solidification of the political force that would win the war against the English is still ultimately about the people. Right. She is moved uh, to support the monarchy as sort of a democratic rev revolt against uh, the English occupiers and the aristocracy in a way. Right. The aristocracy, which was bending over backwards for the English that was ready to make a deal with the English. Um, you know, this is kind of a rectification of the people with the rulers. Right. And ultimately, the betrayal of Joan of Arc is a betrayal of that rectification, right? So it's kind of, this book also is sort of setting the seeds, planting the seeds for how we understand the growing gap between the people and the monarchy that would come in the following centuries. Ultimately, that would have to be rectified again by another re revolution. So I think Mark Twain wants us to look at this as a revolution. And I think it's fair to do that. But Joan creates this briefly, momentarily, really, uh, this alliance between the state and the people. And it falls away right away. Joan, uh, in Twain's mind, is sort of the representation of the people of France. Um, they wanted to march on to Paris and finish the campaign with another great victory. It's the king that stops Joan's plans. Right, um, a truce was arrived at that did not result in total, the total victory that Joan promised and predicted. Now she promised more than what happened. Now ultimately, of course, the French win, 
but they win. Um, I mean, it's like the people break the back of the English and, and then the people are betrayed. Yeah, I guess her hometown gets free tax free for forever. Um, I don't know if they still, maybe they pay taxes now. I don't know. Um, but, you know, that's just a concession to the memory of Joan. It's not uh, the democratic revolution that I think is hinted at and suggested here throughout. Right. So the betrayal of her being handed over to the English is not the first betrayal. It's a series of betrayals that uh, stop that provide a thermidor to the revolution before it actually achieved itself. Right. Um, Mark Twain writes towards the end of the section here, right before she, the arrest, quote, Joan had Paris and France in her grip and the Hundred Years War under her heel and the king made her open her fist and take away her foot. So this, this betrayal then is followed by her capture by the English. So this is, that's just like um, adding insult to injury. The injury's already been done. The revolution's already been betrayed, right? So um, it's like once the war's won, once the English, is, English back is broken, the king and the nobility are able to say, we, we no longer need the people, right? So Joan then becomes redundant. Um, yeah, maybe the war can't be over quite as quick, but the result's going to be the same. The result's going to be you know, a French victory and a victory not of the people, but of the, of the French monarchy, right? Which is going to come out of the Hundred Years' War stronger, one of the new rising monarchies of the early modern world. If you studied world history or even European history, you uh, kind of learn about that right you, you learn about spain and england and france as the new monarchies of the renaissance era that are going to see greater state consolidation not quite absolutism but the movement towards what we'll understand later to be absolutism now the so she's arrested and instead of being uh ransomed which our narrator expects is what happens that's you a great hero is ransomed in the medieval mindset right kings are ransomed all the time that happened quite regularly in the middle ages she's not ransomed she's instead handed over in her trials a heretic right so in a sense it's the french people that are being tried as a heretic because that's where her support came from what shocks the narrator is that the king doesn't effort try to mobilize the people f to rescue of joan so again we're being told the betrayal predates the trial right with her youthful revolutionary power gone the army falls back into the hands of decadent defeatist leaders who brought france to ruin maybe they're not going to lose anymore because as you know the english have been defeated and can't sustain the war effort the king has been crowned right no longer can henry the, the, the English kings, I forget which one. Was it still Henry V? Lay claim, or Henry V's son is going to be the king of France. No longer can that work, because there's a legitimate empowered king in France now. So the war's done, but the spirit of Joan's moment passes with her imprisonment, right? And our narrator has this ennui about this, saying... Uh, we could not realize the change would come upon the country. We seemed able to choose our own route and go wherever we pleased, unchallenged and unmolested. When Joan of Arc was in the field, there was a sort of panic of fear everywhere. But now that she was out of the way, fear had vanished. Nobody was troubled about you or afraid of you. Everyone was indifferent. Um, 
So that is, uh, it's, that comes right at the end. It's, it's actually the beginning of book three, chapter, chapter one or two. There, after, after Jonah's arrested and after the, the king decides not to ransom her off. But again, that's not, that's, this isn't the first betrayal. Joan of Arc's already been betrayed kind of on the field. Her command's been taken away in the sense that she's not allowed to fulfill her job, March on Paris. Um, now, we're going to get in the next episode. I'm going to talk about the trial, and we get more triumphs. But those triumphs are symbolic. She's able to outmaneuver her accusers, but they're not going to affect anything. It's it's a... Uh, how do you compare it to? It's it's like a it's like watching a movie version of of, of something that's that really can't inspire, really be true anymore. It's like watching a movie version of a revolution, like in Star Wars, right? Instead of actually achieving a revolution on 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 the ground, those are those are achievements, right? Right, she take confronts this question of her direct connection with God. Here's where it really becomes Catholic, actually. Right, she defends herself against the cross dressing, the preference of wearing men's clothes, all that kind of stuff. Um, the claims that she was misusing the French people for her own aims, the claims that she was after something else, uh, her religious delusions, all the all the claims, all the accusations leveled against Joan of Arc are deflected easily. Right. But none of that is actually tied to any real political power anymore. It's detached. It's, it's a media event. Right? And that's how we remember her. We remember her chained to the stake. We remember her, her execution and her trial as her great moment. We even remember her battles. We remember her in armor or whatever. But it's what's really the radical, radical thing about Joan of Arc was her achievement of mobilizing the people and being the foundation of of a new state, right? Even if you still have a king, it's the Middle Ages, right? So obviously you're going to have a king, but you know it's not you're not going to get a republic out of this. But you could have got a, a more democratic kind of monarchy, a monarchy that owed its existence to the people. Maybe something something that wouldn't have been able to evolve into an absolutist monarchy. So maybe there's a, a moment in history here that history could have went a different way, right? If Joan of Arc wasn't executed, put on trial, if she had been allowed to continue her march on Paris, maybe what would have came out of that would have been, if not a republic, a France that, that owed a French monarchy that owed and a French aristocracy that owed its existence to the people. And, and of course, we don't get that. Instead, we get... Francis I, ultimately, and the path towards absolutism, which, of course, leads to a, an utterly decrepit and, and decadent aristocracy and, and monarchy that, that just fell over its own weight and had to be abolished, had to be eliminated. So I think that's, that's how this book can be read as kind of a radical political tract, right? So all of her victories in the trial, everything I'm going to talk about in the next episode, and I think I'll go through the accusations and, and her pairing of them, all very bold and amazing stuff, but they're in the broader context 
of a betrayal of a betrayal of of everything she was about which wasn't just um the crowning of the king it's all these other achievements right and ultimately the 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 empowerment of the people against the aristocracy right now maybe the problem was joan working through and with the political and religious systems of her time maybe it was always a half measure i don't know um but by reconnecting the french people to the crown she was giving them the say that was the democratic moment in the hundred years war maybe she could have oversaw the rise of a more popular peasant christianity maybe something more akin to the maybe the reformation could have taken root in france more than it did um maybe the monarchy ultimately would have been an extension of the people's will but we don't get that so um that's that so um yeah i guess that's all i really need to say at this point to set us up for the final 100 pages of this of this book where we're going to explore uh the trial and execution of, of joan of arc and then the conclusions that that mark twain gives us at the end um after this we're going to jump into uh um What's it going to be? The later travel logs, the around, around the equator and and the tramp abroad, those those kinds of books. Um, I think there's two of them, two more major travel logs. So I'm looking forward to getting back into those those books. To, uh, there's a lot of fun stuff in those books, um, but first we have to finish up with Joan of Arc. So that'll be the next episode. So um, as always, thanks for listening, um, and I will see you next time. <laughs>